I see athletes come in with a trauma profile. And, and I don't know whether it's trauma that causes, I don't know what their background is, but I know I have kids that come in with unusually low resting or cycling HRVs. Okay, these kids, they come in right from the beginning and visually you can't tell the difference of them. These are very successful athletes. They obviously got recruited into the program, but once I start measuring HRV every day, where I'm seeing one athlete cycle between 125 milliseconds, let's say, and they're dropping to 75, this kid is moving from 70 down to 20. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again. Breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey there, folks. Welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. Today, we've got myself, we've got Stephen, who you all know, we've got Connor, who you all know, and then we've got our special guest today, Don Moxley. And Don is an exercise physiologist specializing in human assessment, performance, and wellness. He's worked in academia for almost 30 years. For decades, he has been on the cutting edge of integrating technology to track performance. Don worked with the Ohio State wrestling team and helped them in winning the 2015 national championship using the feedback of the central nervous system to inform practice, training, and recovery. And Don was also an assistant professor and coordinated the exercise science program at Urbana University. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that okay, Don. And his work over the years brought to light the role of the endocannabinoid system in recovery. And he's currently working in the cannabis field, which is what we want to get into as a topic today. So just to kick it off, Don, can you tell us a little bit about your initial motivation in making the switch into this space of cannabis? And then also, more to the point, why it matters to athletes and to performance in general? Yeah, it was interesting in the fact that when I was at, so I started learning about modulating the human stress response back in early work that I did with Polar Electro. So the company that makes heart rate monitors, they started measuring a cardiac artifact called heart rate variability. Your heart rate variability tells you where you're at in your stress cycle. Are you sympathetic? Are you fight or flight? Or are you parasympathetic? Are you in rest and recovery? And your ability to cycle in between sympathetic and parasympathetic is the entire training process. We apply stress, that's sympathetic, and we recover, that's parasympathetic. And the work and Doug, that we were doing- break down heart rate variability just a little more for folks? So, that's yeah, that's a great a question. So heart rate variability is, the Russians figured this out back in the late 60s and early 70s, and we're measuring the difference in times between heartbeats. So when we look at an EKG, that tall peak on a heart rate is called the R wave, and we measure the distance between R waves. And when you have high heart rate variability, 
there's a lot of variation in that R wave measurement. So instead of your heartbeat being beep, 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 when you have high HRV, it's beep, 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 beep. It's variable. It's highly variable. When it's low variability, so when that time's right on the same measurement, that means you're in very sympathetic. You're Mm -hmm. under stress. So if a bear walks in the room, your heart rate variability drops to very, very low, probably six or seven milliseconds. And when your heart rate variability is very high, when you're in recovery, it can be up to 120, 150 milliseconds. So the work that we did at Ohio State is we were able to use HRV to measure athlete status. Is this athlete recovering from the work that we've already put them through, or are they prepared for the work we're getting ready to do? But we also found out that it became predictive of performance, that over the years, we're looking at HRV of athletes, particularly going into the national tournament. And uh, we got to where I could tell, you know, we sent 10 guys the last year I was there. So we sent the entire team, first time in school history. And when I did HRVs the morning of the tournament, the first day, I could have told you who would make All-America. We had eight All-Americans that year, another school record. But I could have told you the two guys that wouldn't make it because they just didn't have the recovery. So at the time, listen, I had a great coaching staff that knew how to create stress. They knew the kind of stress that was necessary for an athlete to be able to achieve All-American status or win a national title or do those kinds of things. What we figured out along the way was these athletes' ability to recover wound up being the predictive characteristic of whether they could actually achieve the goal. So I was always looking for recovery tools. I was looking for things that stimulated recovery. So we use sensory deprivation float tanks, and we use mindfulness, and we use breathing. We used a lot of those traditional methodologies and modalities. So, you know, that was my work. But at the same time, I have friends that are in the pros. And in these conversations that we're having, we had friends that were in elite military and in professional sports, and they're saying, have you seen the effect of cannabis? And I'm like, no, not knowingly. I mean, you know, my, I've got NCAA guys that are getting tested for cannabis use. So this is something that was that I was not familiar with. And I had another friend that I'd worked with at a wearables device company out west that had moved into cannabis up in Oregon. And um, he's sending me notes saying, hey, what do you know about cannabinoids and HRV? So I start to look into this and I'm like, okay, there's something here. This is legitimate. And that same friend came to me one day and said, uh, hey, he said, I'm working for a company. We've got a company in Florida. I need someone down there with your background. Are you interested in working in the cannabis industry? And, and I wanted to learn. My time at Ohio State had run out. You know, I was pushing the envelope a little too much. And, you know, the institutional immune system was pushing back on me pretty hard. So I made the decision to leave uh, a pretty cool position, you know, working with these guys and going down and selling weed in Florida. <laughs> hey, Don, I know most of this conversation is going to get taken up by either marijuana questions or HRV questions. And I, but you said you had guys who were phenomenal at figuring out how much stress to apply to create a world-class athlete. Right. Give me a picture of what that, I mean, wrestlers are famously gritty anyways, and wrestler training is famously brutal. So what does that look like at the super elite, you know, winning world championship level, just out of curiosity? It's, it's brutal. You know, listen, it's not unusual to take these athletes and have six hours of working practice a day. So when you start talking about morning workouts, 
that are typically cardiovascularly directed. You throw in lifts, you throw in drilling, you throw in live wrestling. You know, wrestling is kind of a unique sport in the fact that you really can't have a weakness because you'll lose with it. That weakness will cause you to lose. So whether that weakness is cardiovascular fitness or flexibility or some kind of an injury, that's what causes. And, and again, we found that we had a really interesting situation at Ohio State. So I had a room of about 35 guys. Of those 35, 10 of them had either achieved All-American status, were national champions, U.S. world champions, or Olympic gold medalists. So I had 10 guys that achieved at that level. And our stated objective that if you're in our room, we expect you to be able to achieve All-American status. You know, you didn't get in the room unless we thought you had the ability to do that. So of the 35, (laughs) 10 of them had actually achieved the goal. Then we had about another, a little bigger group, 12 or 15 guys that had made our starting lineup somewhere along the way. So sometime along the way, they put on an Ohio State singlet and had had the opportunity to score points for us, but they never were able to achieve All-American status. Either they weren't one of the 10 that qualified for the tournament or they just, you know, they got to the tournament, they didn't make All-American. And then we had another group of about 10 or 12 guys that never put the singlet on, okay? So they were never good enough to crack the starting lineup, but... They were talented enough that if something happened to that wrestler ahead of them, we expected them to be able to step in and achieve that goal. So what we did, Stephen, was we took those athletes. And so the last year I was there, and this is how you and I met the day you were at that book signing. And um, I handed the book to you to sign. And I said, I measured three and a half million data points on a wrestling team last year. And you looked up and said, that's kind of cool. And I'm like, yeah, I thought so too. But we took those data points and we went and dug into them and said, okay, what determines success? What are the elements? And so how strong do you need to be? How much cardio do you need to have? What are the key elements? And, and we were able to isolate that there's a certain level of strength that takes you, you know, if we look at those groups as one, two, three, you have to have a certain strength level to move from group three to group two. So group three is you never wore the singlet. Group two is you wore the singlet, but you didn't make All-American. So you had to have a certain level of strength. You had to be able to deadlift about 2.25 times your body weight. Once you had that, you know, that seemed to be the limit. If you could deadlift three times your body weight, it didn't make a difference. It was non-determinant in your ability to improve. You think that's wrestling specific, by the way? And why deadlifts over bench pull-ups well what's funny about that you mentioned so bench press anybody who knows me knows that's kind of a pet peeve okay bench press predicts nothing okay but i mean it's a valueless exercise to celebrate now i think it's an exercise to have in your routine but it predicts nothing the guy that can bench press a lot probably has a big chest and short humerus and so they don't have to move the weight as far which by the way is not the characteristics of an elite athlete elite athletes typically have really long limbs um, really long limbs are not good for bench pressing so we looked at all the exercises that we measured and well it turns out deadlifting and squatting deadlifting was a little more productive than squatting And I hypothesize that the deadlifting is a better predictor because it includes grip strength. So the strength has to transfer clear through the body into the hands. So the entire central nervous system is part of the process. But it turned out it was an indicator. 
So uh, yeah, strong- where I was going next is, do you think there's a natural, like one exercise that is more predictive of athletic fitness? Because obviously grip strength, that's very wrestler specific. Doesn't matter to like snowboarders, right? They're not grabbing anything. Yeah, listen, I think yes and no. An athlete is an athlete to a certain degree. You have to be able to generate power, and it's got to transfer through the entire system. So your ability, listen, we know that in longevity, that strength that contributes to longevity starts to degrade in the hands. So grip strength goes away with aging the same way, you know, improved grip strength helps in performance. So that's a continuum there. So I don't, I don't know that this there's a huge deviation. Frankly, if I'm training athletes, I'll train my wrestlers next to my volleyball players next to my gymnast because I train the athlete, not necessarily a wrestler. We'll let the sport coach put the skill into the equation. A little bit of a deviation. Now, one of the big things we found with wrestling was everybody thinks wrestling is this anaerobic sport. You know, we work in the short, high energy output process. Well, the thing that was most predictive across all measurements was cardiovascular fitness. Cardiovascular fitness was a selector of moving someone from three to two, moving someone from two to one. If we couldn't get a minimum VO2 out of an athlete, they couldn't make all American. And oh, by the way, the same thing happened with measuring HRV at the tournament. So we have, there are guys that come in and this was the real learning opportunity that recovery is more than just training. It's that athlete comes in with, I call a traumatic portfolio. You know, not all of us have childhoods that are protected and safe. Some kids have to go through some real shit growing up and it affects your ability to recover. And we didn't quite understand this. And this has been one of the huge discoveries I had. So as someone moving into cannabis, you know, guys, I've been at the front of a classroom for 35 years. I've been teaching exercise science for that time. When I was at Urbana, I taught everything. If you were in exercise science, you had seven classes with me. It was a small school and we just didn't have faculty. So I taught everything. But I had to leave academics and elite research and go into the weed industry to learn about the endocannabinoid system. Okay. And frankly, the endocannabinoid system should be chapter two of exercise 101. When you start looking at the value of exercise, the endocannabinoid system is the driver there. So understanding endocannabinoids, anandamide, 2-AG, the receptors, the entire process, I believe is an entirely new horizon and an entirely new opportunity for sport performance. Yeah, Don, I completely agree with that. I'd love to share a little bit of my experience and then get your take on the same idea and see if that resonates with you. Uh, Chandra, if you could break down the endocannabinoid system a little more as well, I think that'd be really helpful just to make sure everyone's tracking. Sure. Yes. So the endocannabinoid system is, some people point to it as responsible for your body's homeostasis, but effectively the endocannabinoid endocannabinoid system revolves around two main receptor sites. There are more than just that, but the two primary receptor sites are the CD1 and the CD2 receptor sites. And so if you think about cannabis, cannabis is composed of a number of different elements. First and foremost, that gets at least the most rap is THC, which is the psychoactive component of cannabis, right? And so that actually causes the psychoactive effect of feeling high. 
And then there's the CB2 receptor site. So the CB1 receptor site is primarily found in the central nervous system. And so that's, you know, throughout the brain, less in the lower regions of the brain, which is actually one of the reasons why humans cannot overdose on THC. You can't smoke too much weed and overdose on it. And the main reason for that is you don't have too many CB1 receptor sites in the lower brain region. You key side question that has to get directed at Connor in the middle of all this. <laughs> so does that mean that the, I didn't know this, I didn't think about it this way. The majority of endocannabinoid receptors in the amygdala are CB2. So that's an exception. So my understanding, and I'd have to confirm that, is okay. CB1 receptor sites, I believe, in the left amygdala. And so there are some receptor oh. sites there. But by and large, you have a number of different receptor sites in, say, um, the hippocampus, but it's not evenly distributed across your reptilian brain and your higher brain function as well. But interestingly enough, that's why dogs cannot have cannabis, because dogs can overdose on cannabis. However, humans cannot. And actually, let, let me step that back. Dogs cannot have THC. They can have CBD. And so that was the CB1 receptor site. The CB2 receptor site is mostly through your immune system. And so with CBD, which is non-psychoactive, that's primarily acting on the CB2 receptor site. So there's more complexity to it than that. But the endocannabinoid system is responsible for a number of different homeostatic functions, including how we respond to stress, including uh, immune system function, fear and anxiety. There are a number of different aspects of human performance that are caught up in that. And so if you're interested in CBD, right, the non-psychoactive version of cannabis, what we see is people are largely drawn to it for stress management, sleep and pain. And so stress, sleep, and pain are kind of the trifecta that uh, draws people to CBD. So Connor, let me jump in there real quick. So my research so far has shown me, so to the audience, with the cannabis plant produces very different, what's called advanced pharmaceutical ingredients, APIs. Cannabinoids are one, terpenoids, so terpenes are another. Mm -hmm. Now on the cannabinoid side, Connor, I do not believe cannabidiol, CBD, bonds to either the CB1 or the CB2 site. And we can talk about this and dig into it if you want. My experience shows me that the value of CBD is in the preserving of anandamide, of natural anandamide in the system. So anandamide will hit both of those. And the presence of CBD, cannabidiol, preserves anandamide through its interference with FAAH the enzyme that breaks down anandamide. But the important part is, is that CBD does work with other non-cannabinoid receptors. It hits the villanoid receptors. It hits several of the other brain receptors that have to deal with dopamine and pain and so forth. But it doesn't actually directly agonize either the CB1. It aggravates them. So if you are using THC and you do get a little too high, consuming CBD will dislodge that THC connection to the CB1 receptor but it doesn't actually bond to it. Have you seen that similar research? I haven't seen that research, but it points at what's one of the most interesting parts of cannabis research, which is the entourage effect. I think that's, you know, for our listeners, I think it's worthwhile mentioning that, which is one thing that makes cannabis research so much different from other domains is that there's this so-called entourage effect, where if you take something like CBD, you're taking a number of different cannabinoids, 
And it seems like together they have a net effect that's larger than just the sum of the individual parts of it. And there are a number of different theories for that. Don, you've worked a lot on this, right? Your work with terpenes have really looked at the entourage. Terpenes could be part of it, but also receptor sites that we haven't discovered yet. I mean, there are a number of different receptor sites beyond CB1 and CB2, but another theory is that there are additional receptor sites that we're just not aware of yet. Yep. So yeah, and this is the whole challenge when we start to deal with this is that, that number one, cannabis, you know, we want to take cannabis and right now the industry parlance is, is it an indica strain or is it a sativa strain? So we've got these big categories. The problem is cannabis, when it went into underground growing, it got all crossed up. And it was being crossed up and bred to breed THC up because that's where the market was. And frankly, it still is. And so as you're breeding up THC, we didn't even know what CBD was for a long time. So that was not even in, it was almost throwaway. Well, now that we know that CBD has a therapeutic benefit and a therapeutic effect, we're starting to select for that. And we're starting to see the breeding standardized. But the other challenges that we have, we have an entire class of other chemicals that are called terpenes that have the same enzymatic mother that cannabinoids do. So when you look at terpenes, whether it's beta-caryophylline or, or any of the terpene changes, limonene, methionine, any of them, they come from the original mother molecule. Depending on the enzymatic pathway they go through, they transform into a cannabinoid or into a terpene. But they have a therapeutic impact, and it changes the growing of the plant, changes the terpene profile, changes the cannabinoid profile, plant to plant. So research is incredibly challenging using just basic plant extracts. Well, hold on one sec. Don, when you say plant to plant, it's strain to strain, right? No, I'm saying plant to plant. Literally, Literally it can change. Like if I have a seedling, I take a cutting, I grow a... So clonally identical, still going to be different. Yeah. Literally, if you have 10 plants that came from the same clone, the plant on one end of the table can have a different terpene profile. Now, it's not going to be radically different, but it's going to be different enough that in research, it, it, it could make a difference. Holy crap. Yeah. So cannabis is incredibly influenced by environmental factors, light, heat, sun, water, you know, all yeah, these. That's why, I, that's why I have Connor talk to all my marijuana before I smoke it. There you go. <laughs> I have, he reads stories. Winnie the Pooh produces a particularly good high. If yeah. I'm sore in the throat, it's because I spent all night talking to a Stevens marijuana player. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good looking out. Help but, but no, Don, the, the question that I want to ask you was going back to this trauma piece. So, one of the most exciting areas of cannabis research for me is you mentioned FAH inhibitors. And so FAH inhibitors, just for our listeners, this is what actually, so FAH is what degrades anandamide, which is your endogenous endocannabinoid, right? What's naturally within your brain. FAH is the enzyme that degrades it within your brain. And so there's a lot of research right now on FAH inhibitors and how they deal with anxiety and PTSD. So there's actually not nearly as much research as they could be. This is an area for active pharmaceutical development for PTSD interventions, which are FAH inhibitors that seem to affect both your anxiety response and something more pronounced like PTSD. And so going back to your comments earlier about dealing with the trauma of your athletes, how is it that you've seen CBD and cannabis being helpful specifically with those subsets of individuals who have some sort of traumatic background that's affecting their recovery. 
side so, question off this one, Don, before you answer it, because you'll weave okay. it. I know you will, which is with some of that FAH inhibitor research, do you also get like PTSD where we're looking at stress response effects, but do you get pain signaling response effects as well? Like the other systems that are so activated by cannabis and such, does that show up in that? So I'll let you weave that all together. So first of all, the challenge is we can't do good research right now in this country. Okay. So everything that we're talking about is aggravated, is aggregated, not aggravated, aggregated end of one testimonial kind of work. Now, we do know there's great research that shows that in fear-conditioned mice, there's a drop of anandamide in the amygdala, and it's a fixed drop. And, you know, this is consistent with what we see with elite warrior groups. We see elite warriors, once a warrior is post-traumatic exposed and, and they have the they don't level back up. Their new level is hypervigilant all the time. And it's constantly an investment of time to raise, to gain peace because hypervigilance is how they survived, right? And we've got some good mouse studies that show that with fear condition, there's a drop of anandamide in the amygdala, which makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint. You know, if you're born into a rattlesnake pit, the only way you survive is through hypervigilance. Okay, so that's a survival instinct. But the problem is, is when you're not living in, a, you know, if, when you move from living with rattlesnakes to living with bunnies, it's still a hypervigilant state and you've got to adjust that. So I think it makes a lot of sense that if, listen, all these guys that came back from Vietnam smoking pot. And if you think about the fact that you take these kids out of these households that are relatively peaceful and quiet and you dump them in the middle of hell in Vietnam, that's an incredible, stressful, traumatic environment. Okay. Why do they smoke pot? Well, because it levels out anandamide. It makes sense is that it's maintaining anandamide in the amygdala and they're just coming back to normal. Okay. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Don, on that front, by the way, I've always wanted to do like a PTSD study in Vietnam vets versus like Desert Storm, where they clamped down on pot smoking in the military so much it went away. And I thought this would be a great, I mean, it's, it's hard to go back in time and do that stuff, but it'd be really interesting, right? Well, and then if, listen, if you start to do some studies in these guys, like they're doing with the head injury studies that we're doing with football and athletes, where we're doing the actual brain studies, it might be interesting to go. I mean, I, again, I'm not enough of a neuro chemists to know the effect of this, but could you take brains of stressed individuals and can you do these amygdala studies at that point? And I don't know. I don't know if that oh, molecule is still. Yeah. Um, oh, that's interesting I, too. But so, you know, let's try and come back on track here and get out of this <laughs> rabbit hole. There's no doubt in my mind when you look at the anandamide response, and let me back up even more to Connor's question. With the work that we were doing with Ohio State and with some other athletes, I see athletes come in with a trauma profile. And, and I don't know whether it's trauma that caused I don't know what their background is. But I know I have kids that come in with unusually low resting or cycling HRVs. Okay, these kids, they come in right from the beginning. And visually, you can't tell the difference of them. These are very successful athletes. They obviously got recruited into the program. But once I start measuring HRV every day, where I'm seeing one athlete cycle between 125 milliseconds, let's say, and they're dropping to 75, this kid is moving from 70 down to 20. 
What is unusually low, Don? That's what I want to just check. It's my belief that we couldn't achieve All-American status with a morning RMSSD of below 75 milliseconds. And literally, I have three, and again, this is aggregated end of one data. I had three guys that we had that had morning measurements of 70 or below that did not make All-American status. Everybody that was 75 and above did. The N on this is not statistically significant. This is observational stuff at best. But I'll tell you, if I'm the coach and I'm trying to line kids up to win a national title or be All-Americans, I'm doing everything I can to get their resting morning RMSSD measurements up to 75 milliseconds minimum. And not only did we see it at that treatment, so one of the other HRV measurements we get is we can do what's called a frequency measurement. So there's what's called high frequency signals and low frequency signals. Low frequency signals are typically associated with sympathetic stress. High frequency is typically uh, associated with recovery, parasympathetic. And we do an LF-HF ratio. So we divide sympathetic by parasympathetic. So this athlete gave me permission to talk about this. Kyle Snyder, the Olympic gold medalist I had, this guy's a four-time national finalist, three-time national champ, three-time world champion, Olympic gold medalist. He had the highest resting morning HRV we ever measured, 125 milliseconds. And that was one of the first things. I had another Olympian that was not a gold medalist. He was 105 milliseconds. My national champions were in the 90-second range. My All-Americans were 75 or above. When we started looking at this data set, when we started measuring, I was like, okay, this is kind of screaming at you. This is something we need to pay attention to. But Kyle had a situation. He had not lost a wrestling match in three years, either in college or in international. And he was wrestling. Um, he had a, His last year, he had a competitor from the University of Michigan who was also a world medalist, but he was huge. Adam Kuhn would cut. So the heavyweight class in college has got a 275, 285-pound weight limit. Um, Adam would cut weight that day to make 285. He's a big dude. Now, Kyle wrestles 97 kilograms internationally. That's 213 pounds. So he walks around our wrestling room at about 235. So he's walking into this wrestling match about 235. Adam Kuhn's cutting weight to make 285. And this guy's big and he's talented. He had achieved world champion status on his own. We woke up that morning, and this was really cool, the fact that I got to measure these guys' HRVs every morning of a competition. I didn't necessarily get them every morning during the year. I usually got them right before practice during the year. But every, on competition, particularly when we traveled, I showed up in their room, and I got the measurement. So I measured Kyle, and here's a guy that had not lost a wrestling match in three years, was a world champion, Olympic medalist. And that morning, I would measure him, and the guys all learned that no matter what their measurement was, I said, hey, you look great, you're going to be good. Because at that point, there wasn't a lot I could do about it, right? You know, kind of die was cast at that point. So I measured him, and his HRV was unusually, RMSSD was unusually low, and his LFHF was 20. Okay, so he had 20 times more signaling coming from his sympathetic pathway than from his parasympathetic. It's the only wrestling match he lost in three years. So I pull this guy into my office the next day and I said, so tell me about how you're feeling, what was going on in the match. I made the mistake of asking a 20-year-old if he was fearful, which you shouldn't ask them that. Um, and... <laughs> So we got through the conversation and I just said, well, let me show you what I saw. And I showed him the data and he said, so what do we do about this? So with him, I started an intervention 
of, there's a really cool company out West that's called HeartMath. And they've got this little device that's called an inner balance that gamifies parasympathetic boosting. So I give him this thing and this kid goes off the charts. It turns into a competition with him. So he wrestled Adam Kuhn two more times, never had an LFHF of over two. So we went from 20 to two. Still had the same sympathetic signal, but we boosted the parasympathetic signal dramatically. So we got that ratio where it needed to be. So through using you know, the inner balance mainly? Oh, absolutely. We're, we were floating, we we're using inner balance. And in retrospect, now obviously cannabis is still not legal in, in NCAA sports, but if I'm working with this person internationally, I am absolutely using cannabis based supplements. Again, because my belief is that HRV is a direct assessment of your stress system. Um, Can I ask a follow-up question on that? You mentioned that if they're using uh, some sort of heart rate variability training, their heart rate variability goes up, then their performance goes uh, up. If they're changing weight, they're messing with the amount of water they have in their system, and we know that hydration is correlated back to HRV. And so does it work in the opposite direction as well yes. when your athletes are going through these huge weight fluctuations? So one of the first things we fixed in the program was weight cut. So literally one of the first, I started working with the program, working with one athlete using HRV as a tool to help this kid. We had a lot of success. We won the national title that year. And this is a whole nother story in and of itself that I don't think we have time for right now. But when I started working with the program the next year, one of the first things I started monitoring was body weight. And we looked at the weight during the week versus what and when they made weight. So we looked at percent of body weight loss leading up to a match, and we started correlating that back to performance. We saw immediately that a bad weight cut means bad performance. Mm -hmm. Okay, straight off that. So literally, this was some of the early sports science that we used trying to make adjustments. So we then started really paying close attention. And you got to be careful weighing kids in every day because psychologically that can really mess with some kids. Wrestlers, it's not as big an issue. But when you start weighing other athletes in every day, you're inviting eating disorders and a lot of other problems. But, you know, wrestlers, we step on a scale before the match every time. So it's a little different. But you're absolutely right. And we have to account for that. We know there's going to be a weight cut stress that comes in 12 to 24 hours before the match. We have to put that in the equation because cutting weight, listen, if cutting weight didn't work, we wouldn't do it, you know, when it comes right down to it. I know there are more variables than that, but it seems like the majority of your training program was based around optimizing for heart rate variability. No, that was the majority of our recovery program. So let's separate those two. There's training. There's the amount of sympathetic work it takes to create this challenge to get the response. So whether that sympathetic work is cardiovascular strength, uh, you know, skill. So, but then we started to coach recovery. I had a teammate of mine. I wrestled at Ohio State too, years and years ago. And one of my teammates is a pain management doc out. And his name's Dr. Ron Garbo. And Ron was a huge help to me in this program. But Ron uses HRV in pain management. He helps wean people off opiate addiction using HRV tools. 
not unlike we're using cannabis and cannabinoids to wean people off of opioids. Oh, you know, Shazam, maybe they're connected, you know, but when you start to look at this concept of recovery, we started coaching intentional recovery. Another quick story. So I walk into the room and I've got one of my athletes, numbers are dropping a little bit and I'm like, what's going on? And literally before practice, he says, Mox, he says, so would playing a hellacious game of Fortnite affect my recovery. I said, if I walked in here with a gun and I pointed it at you, what would your body do? He said, I'd be in stress. I said, how does your brain know the difference, whether it's a real gun or a fake gun? Your body doesn't know the difference. So literally I'm coaching kids about, we've got to take a look at first person video game shooting behaviors prior to bed and are we getting a sympathetic kick out of it? In fact, we did some stuff. We did some 24 and 40 hour measurements that we were able to see it. We got to the point where I, not, I did, there, was two, there was two real important things we found. Number one, we found that drinking four beers before bed cuts your sleep efficiency in half. So sleeping for eight hours only was worth sleeping for four hours if you had four beers. So alcohol definitely addresses the ability to recover. And I got to the point to where when we're doing the 24-hour measurements, I could tell if my athletes were sleeping in bed with a partner so that literally I had to have discussions with the guys about, listen, this is what's Mickey and Rocky, you know, women weak in the legs. I'm not that guy. Um, but I would say to them, I would say, listen, get your business done. And I want you sleeping in your own bed by yourself. There were some girlfriends that were not happy with me, but we got to wear it because, it, you know, it makes sense. If I've got this 20-year-old male, as virile as possible can be, and he's laying in bed with his girlfriend, she rustles and his subconscious says, hey, you might want to get on that. Um, <laughs> you know, we had to coach recovery, and this is a huge deal. So no beer, no video games, and no sex. No, that's that's not what I said. That's no, I'm joking. I've got two questions, <laughs> totally unrelated to one another. I can ask both at once. And one is nobody seems to be able to give me a good answer on this, and I know you're not a neurochemist, but the inner relationship between the endocannabinoid system and the endogenous opiate system. I've been asking neuroscientists, and like no, every time I ask the question, essentially within ten seconds, somebody throws up their hand and just says, "I just don't know. We just don't know." The hippie speedball, which is everybody's favorite flow hack, right? A cup of coffee, 20 minutes of exercise, you know, just transient level fertility and a joint. Why do you think it works to induce flow? What do you think is going on there? So both of those questions, I don't know if they're related or not, but I want to both at once. So, so I'm going to go to the second one first. Flow is a natural evolutionary process. Okay. It's what supported subsistence hunting. Okay. There was a point in time when you had to be rewarded for going out on the savanna and going for many, many hours to be able to get food to bring home, right? So the body has to have a way to reinforce that because it's painful too. You know, the thing about flow is not the fact that there's a lack of pain. There's actually pain. It's just that it's blocked. I don't think of cannabis as triggering flow. I think of cannabis as being a tool to inhibit a flow blocker. If you've got a situation where you're not recovering, if you've got a situation where, you know, you do have a traumatic background that we have to manage, I see the ability to level up anandamide as the ability to create the conditions to be able to get into flow. In the uh, absence of that, it's a blocker. Does that make sense? 
I don't think it's a trigger. You know, if you think about the role of cannabis in sexual relations, okay, we all know that sex on cannabis is really good, okay, or it can be really good. If you take a look at someone, listen, we're traumatizing women today. What, one in four girls are having to deal with some kind of sexual misconduct by the time they're 18, one in six boys, okay? We are creating hypervigilant humans at an amazing rate right now. Okay, because of the nature of society and the stuff that's going on. So if you think about this from the standpoint that cannabis doesn't create good sex, cannabis creates an environment so you can have sex, yeah. which is in and of itself is a naturally very positive thing. And it's not traumatic and so forth. Well, this is just an extension of that continuum. Exactly. It, it, it's one of the reasons why cannabis is so interesting is because it suppresses the HPA axis. And so it deals with the heart of stress. Right. So Don, yeah, just completely. going back to, to what you were mentioning, uh, HRV wise, I'm, I'm super curious for, let's say for amateur athletes, for entrepreneurs, for executives, just general people wanting to perform. First question is what's a good way of measuring HRV for individuals? And then are there any other pieces of advice you would have around increasing HRV and recovery in general? The way I answer that question, if you are trying to do human optimization at any level, if you exercise you're doing, and you don't own at least a basic heart rate monitor, you're kidding yourself, okay? The idea that you're exercising without this, you know, listen, you can buy a heart rate transmitter now for 50 to 80 bucks that talks to your phone and can talk to free apps, okay? So you can start aggregation of data for 50 to 80 bucks. I don't think you wear another piece of athletic wear that costs less than that, okay? The shirts and the shorts you're wearing, the shoes are twice as much, and the shirts and shorts are close to that much. And again, so if you don't have a basic heart rate monitor and you're not measuring heart rate to begin with, you're kidding yourself, okay? Go get a heart rate monitor and start to measure your heart rate. If you have that heart rate monitor, you can plug that into an app. So there's any number of good apps out there that you can wake up in the morning and put that heart rate monitor on to get your HRV. Now, with that said, getting someone to wake up in the morning and put a heart rate monitor on first thing in the morning to measure HRV is not a long-term success. It doesn't work. I really like some of these new tools. I, I've heard you talk about it. I wear an aura ring. I think this is one of the most frictionless devices as far as measuring HRV is there is. I love the work that aura ring does. But aura ring doesn't give me H LFHF. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is, how are you getting the metrics you actually need from the Aura? So RMSSD is their HRV measurement. So that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of the speedometer, right? You know, listen, we don't worry about the speed of our car until we see law enforcement, right? So we drive around all day and we're oblivious to the dashboard. But all of a sudden, either my phone pops up and says, Waze says, hey, there's a cop up there, or I see him visually, then I start paying attention to what's going on. So in life, you know, we go through life and it's not until we have something pop up that we want to pay attention to, okay, what's our HRV? And, and that's where Aura Ring, their RMSSD comes into play. If my speed isn't quite right and I'm trying to dig into it, is that then I'll, I like the guys at Elite HRV. There's an app called Elite HRV. I've done a lot of work with these guys. They've got a great little simple app. And so a lot of times I'll wake up in the morning and do an Elite HRV assessment to get my HFLF, LFHF. So, you know, that's kind of going into the tachometer on your car or, you know, you get a, a dashboard light that, that comes on and they I go use an to, optical sensor in the phone, right? 
No, no, they have an optical sensor that can go on your finger. When I'm using there, so I'm either using their finger sensor or I'm using a transmitter, a okay. chest transmitter. So those are my two kind of go-tos. Listen, there's a lot of great companies out there. There's Omega Wave, there's First Beat, there's a lot of good ones out there. Yeah, we, we use First Beat together, right, when we were yep. doing that little study. Yeah, listen, First Beat has got a 24-hour assessment tool where you can put that device on and wear it for 24 or 48 hours. That is a great tool. The software is a little pricey. You got to be in a situation where you're doing it a lot to pay for it. So I'm not, I'm not doing enough of it that I want to pay for that license right now. But when I am that, I'll, I'll go to that. But I'll tell you, Aura Ring is... Um, so, so the Aura HRV will do the trick for most people. The Aura HRV is really, really good. Some of these connections I have from the elite military and the work that I did at Ohio State, they're constantly looking at what are the quality tools Aura Ring is really good. And I would just add Whoop to that as well, because Whoop is doing something similar, but their metrics that they give you and the way they interpret that data for you is a little bit more conducive to athletes rather than a general population. Yeah. A little bit more for a general population. Yeah. Yeah. Connor, we, I don't have connections to either of these companies. Yeah. Neither, um, neither do we. Whoop's have. algorithms, I thought were really good. I'm not sure you can get quality HRV with PPG across the back of the wrist. I think the fact that Aura is pulling it from the inside of that finger and the capillary beds are tighter and closer, I think they've got a little better... Um, yeah, you're making a hard preach argument for him. <laughs> right. I, I, again, I, got, I don't have a dog in this fight. For general population, let's say with an Aura ring, what are the ranges you want to be looking I wouldn't, for? I wouldn't, wouldn't say... Because, you know, I don't know what your background is. I don't know what kind of shit you had to deal with growing up, okay? And if you have been traumatized, if you have had a situation where you have had to use hypervigilance for survival, your reign changes. Mm -hmm. And we have this in our family, okay? So in my family, I have people in my family that have had to deal with this and have to deal with post-traumatic stress whether it's from life, whether it's from family life or military or things like that. And you know what? Yeah. I mean, since you work for me, you should just assume you've had traumatic stress. <laughs> <laughs> I like That's why mine's only 10, is it? <laughs> um, but it's on that speedometer. The question is, you know, listen, if you're driving on the Audubon, okay, the speedometer range is a certain level. If you're driving on a United States highway, interstate, there's another range. And if you're driving on a dirt road in Wyoming, there's another range. And they both have highs and lows. Unfortunately, the world has given us the range of a dirt road to the Audubon sometimes. Elite athletes are Audubon, okay? And the question is, when you're looking at those ranges, are the behaviors moving to the top <laughs> of your range? Are you able to explore the top of your range? What's dragging you back down to the bottom? Can you put a finger on what's driving that response? I was going to just say, what are the behaviors then that can move someone up to the top of the range? So listen, investing in intentional recovery is critical, okay? I can't say enough about sensory deprivation float tanks, okay? Float tanks work. They're legit. We floated our wrestlers 140 times in my last year there, wow. okay? We used them a lot, and they work. They move the needle. And again, what was the result? We qualified 10 guys for nationals. We had a school record All-Americans. We had a school record for points scored. We missed winning the national title by one fucking match. Pardon the French. But we were up against really good competition. John, just, so, so just out of curiosity, 
maybe my math is off, but you had 35 guys on your team. So roughly each guy's floated about four times over the course of a season. No, 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 no. These guys would float, I would say, on the app. Okay, no. So we're only really floating our starters. So we would float the other guys some, but we kept that resource primarily for the guys that were in a point-scoring position because that's where we were ramping it up. You know, that's where we really needed performance. So, no, it wasn't unusual for a guy to float 12 to 15 times in a season. And I was pushing them hard going into nationals. I mean, I wanted them in the tank every other day, every third day. I, for how long? I mean, you know what? We were using a commercial tank. They had a one-hour limit on it. I don't think it takes an hour personally. I think that's an opportunity for some good research. Frankly, I can't float for an hour. And I have an unusually low HRV compared to my wrestlers, but I'm, you know, I'm 58 years old this summer. I'm not in that tank for an hour. I really struggle. I've never been able to fall asleep in a float tank. My wrestlers will fall asleep within five minutes. It's the light and music that brings them up. So that's just the difference. I think you can get a therapeutic hit in 30 minutes, 30, 45, but there needs to be some research done there. Okay. So what would be some of the other ones? Because I think that's super helpful. We used a lot of breathing techniques. So we taught recovery breathing, RMSA breathing. So breathing five seconds in, five seconds out, six breaths a minute. So that optimizes parasympathetic response. And it was really fun. The high cognitive guys that really got this stuff, I watched them start to use that technique in matches. I would watch them go out of bounds. And as they started to walk back in, because we, st- we also taught body position. I really like Amy Cootie's work. She wrote the book Presence and Physiological Structure and its Ability to Trigger Parasympathetic Response. So we would teach body position, get your head up, get your shoulder. You know, she talks about that Wonder Woman position. But I'd also watch my good guys kick in with some recovery breaths. As they were going out of bounds, they'd start recovery breaths. So as they came back in bounds, they would get a recovery advantage in that short period of time of moving from out of bounds to restarting the wrestling. So breathing techniques, we used um, headspace with a lot of guys. Usually before I would start guys floating, I would have them do the 10-day introductory cycle on headspace just so that when they got in the tank, they had some tools to use and start to breathe their way through that tank. So those were the big ones. John, just out of uh, curiosity, because I've always wondered this with the recovery breaths, like when you're out of breath, right? Like, so they're moving mm-hmm. from, right there, they're going, by the time they're getting kicked out of bounds, I'm assuming they're going to be out of breath. They're wrestlers, it's a match. So are you having them sort of that first couple of recovery breaths, are you just like fighting through it? And won't that produce a stress response in and of itself? No, no. I think the research is pretty clear on that, on the five seconds in, five seconds out. Regardless, listen, I can do this when I'm training right now. I know, or shifting down to belly breathing, getting out of that sympathetic chest breathing and shifting down to belly breathing. You can gamify this. You can see this in your metrics and they may be out of breath, but they're not breathless. Okay, they still have resources there. You know, that's the thing about wrestling. It may be hard, but you're not close to death. You're just tired. You know, you're just you're just extended and recovery breathing always fits there. I think any athlete can benefit from using recovery breathing. So and then to throw the last element in now, knowing what I know now, I would be using some kind of a cannabinoid, terpenoid, cannabinoid combination as a nutritional supplement. 
I think that going ahead and getting CBD into your system, I really like the combination of beta-caryophylline, limonene, linalool, and methionine. Beta-caryophylline binds to the CB2 receptor, okay? Beta-caryophylline is, is, is a cannabinoid. It just happens to be produced in plants other than cannabis, but it binds to the CB2 receptor. Methionine, it binds to pain, you know, so it blocks pain reception. Uh, limonene for anxiety, linalool, as well as in that relationship. So I'm usually getting those five terpenes rolled into my cannabis nutrients. If I remember your research correctly, limonene and linalool have a, they work together, correct? Yeah. So this goes back to that entourage is that where limonene may create you think of it as uplifting, a uh, lemony scent. It's uplifting mm-hmm. scent. Linalool is like from lilac, so it's usually relaxing. But oh. when you combine, when you combine linalool with limonene, it actually has a greater relaxing effect. Um, it doesn't negate it. Actually, and so, um, so I would throw both of those in particular in the afternoon. I love using lemongrass. I actually used to have a fitness facility that was called Lemonade Fitness. And we, we had a lot of lemon scent in there because it was energizing. It was getting you into the mindset that we wanted to when you're coming in to work out. I think there's some real opportunity there with performance-based smell therapy, aromatherapy. In going back to that stack, so we know that THC can be an anti-anxiety up to a point, but people who use too much THC have elevated cortisol and they can no longer regulate stress. So it has the right. inverse effect. For recovery... Where does THC play into your view? I don't know yet. I think from a pain standpoint, so let's step away from athletics into just regular humans, okay? And we're dealing, so let's move down the continuum to where we've got someone dealing with chronic pain, trouble sleeping, and anxiety. I think you've got to be really careful about consuming THC at a ratio greater than one-to-one to CBD, okay? I think you got to be really careful there. I think these high THC extracts that are out there can be really challenging. And I think so if you're going for pain mitigation, lowering of anxiety, improved sleep, I really like high CBD combinations with a THC bumper. So whether it's 10 to 1 or 8 to 1. But again, when you start looking at what is the traumatic profile of the individual, this could be entirely variable. You know, I mean, again, if someone grew up in a snake pit versus someone who grew up in a bunny house, the regulation of anandamide in the amygdala and the hypervigilance will be different. So you can't take cannabis and say, oh, you know, this nine pound hammer or this AK-47 will work good for everybody. You know, that's the challenge. Let me ask you another sort of flow related endocannabinoid question, which is we know from all the runners I work that there's anandamide inflow and that yep. work that great that shows up hypothetically 20 minutes into exercise 25 minutes into exercise whatever but we also know that the endocannabinoid system or it appears to be a master stress regulator and my understanding is that that shows up almost immediately like well like as soon as information comes into the brain goes to the thalamus goes to the amygdala and as soon as it gets to the the lateral amygdala right the very front point in the chain you got a CBD, mm-hmm. I think it's one receptor there. So my question is, 
There's endocannabinoids at the front end, and it's do we think it's happening when it reaches a certain threshold in the system? Do we have any idea? I know it's such a weird question. I don't think I don't think we know. I, I don't I think, think we know is, either. So right now in an exercise environment, right now we we make recommendations for exercise and intensity levels. And the, the range that we use is max. So the top of it is when do you fly off the back of the treadmill versus rest versus where we go into what we call anaerobic threshold or where do we shift from aerobic consumption to where we start to accumulate lactate and we start to move into those anaerobic sources. So it's all fuel source oriented, right? I think there's an opportunity to add a definition to intensities. There's going to be a point that we're going to find out how to measure anandamide production. This is really hard to do right now. I was talking to William Kramer, Dr. William Kramer. I mean, this guy's on, you know, he's president of the American College of Sports Medicine, president of National Strength Condition. He's a researcher at Ohio State. And I said, why don't we have an, anand- an understanding of when what the anandamide level is for exercise? Because I think those exercise ranges can also be informed by, if we know where lactate kicks in, where does cortisol come into play? Where can I exercise where I'm maximizing mitochondrial development, so I'm getting all the oxygenation in mitochondrial, I'm getting the anandamide response, and I'm not getting cortisol production like I get up here. Listen, there is still so much more to learn. We do not have, we do not have a handle on this yet. And again, you know, Right now, I wear a continuous glucose monitor along with my Aura Ring. I'm kind of a data. F- um, so all of my exercise, I'm an insulin-resistant type 2 diabetic. That's my genetics, okay? So everything I do about diet and exercise is about maintaining blood sugar and keeping insulin as low as I can. So all of my exercise revolves around that. I'm not running marathons. I'm not trying to win wrestling matches anymore. I'm trying to live long so I can, you know, raise my grandkids and and my great-grandkids. Well, there's going to be a point in time when we can measure anandamide and understand individual anandamide production from exercise, and we're going to have a recommendation on that. It's not there. Right now, people are exercising to lose weight, okay? It's vanity. That's vanity. That's not health, okay? Anandamide production is health. Mitochondrial improvement is health. Cortisol regulation and control is health-related, stress-related. This is where we've got to begin to shift to, and frankly, it's the research that they did on THC that told us about the CB1 systems. I mean, and we need to unlock the research on this so that we can dig into this more. A little bit of a soapbox there, but I'm off it now. That's great, Don. Do you recommend glucose monitors in general, let's say for folks who just find that they get massively sleepy after lunch and want to optimize things further? You know, I'm not, listen, I definitely, using a continuous glucose monitor has been life-changing for me, okay? And again, I've been looking at data related to exercise for a long time. And it wasn't until I had that direct application of when I eat this food, you know, recently I've not had, I've not had a highly, glycemic products since I had sushi right before the Super Bowl. I was down in Miami right before the Super and I had sushi then and I was started wearing it and I had this huge my blood sugars went to three times normal. You know what? Since then I've not had rice. I've not had a carbohydrate. I've not had a, a wheat based product or anything like that. I have a lot of green carbohydrates and things like that. I've not had a potato. I've not and I've got control over my blood sugar. And my exercise I now know what my exercise is doing to this too. I'm willing to invest time in zone two because I know there's a great mitochondrial benefit there and I need that mitochondrial health to dr- the ability to metabolize this energy and drive it down. 
So it's changed the way I manage my personal life. I think it's something you should talk to your doctor about. Yeah, and, and think, Rand, I think you should take your, your question to the Biohacker podcast down the road. He <laughs> <laughs> doesn't like that one. <laughs> um, well, maybe this is too biohackery, actually. You can start me, Stephen, if so. But I was just going to ask, what are some of the other data that you attempt to amalgamate and pay extra careful attention to with respect to your own performance or that you recommend folks do? Well, so from my standpoint, you know, I bought a bike almost 20 years ago. So there was this bike manufacturer out in Seattle. It's called CompuTrainer. And they made a thing called Velotron. So this Velotron's got a 54-pound flywheel on the back with copper fins that I can control watt by watt. So literally, I'm able to go in and program exactly what I want my workout to be, watt by watt throughout. The- this has been an incredible tool for me. And I happen to live, I, uh, my daughter was born 22 years ago. My wife and I moved to where we live now. And I live on a 14-mile rail-to-trail. So I take my bike down, I get on, I ride 10 miles up to this next town, and I turn around and I ride 10 miles back. And for me, that little 20-mile ride, I've been doing that for 20 years, and I can go do that ride, and I know exactly what my fitness level is compared to all the rides I've done for the last... I have a heart rate file of every exercise, every workout I've done for close to the last 30 years. So I don't know how you train without heart rate. And so... I figured out the value early on and had just have, listen, if I don't have my heart rate monitor on, I probably won't work out. Okay. So my big challenge is making sure I've got a heart rate with me all the time. So, you know, I've got earphones that measure heart rate. I've got a wrist rod that measures heart rate and I travel with a transmitter. So I've always got something because I want that feedback all the time. That's just, that's just where I live. And just to follow up to that. So, so I mean, heart rate is great for aerobic exercise. How do you translate some of those same tools to anaerobic exercise where heart rate isn't necessarily as good of a metric of exertion? So recovery becomes your secondary indicator. So if I'm doing anaerobic stuff, it's usually max effort, okay? So if I'm going there, I'm going there, right? I'm not, I don't want to go 80%. If I'm going max effort, I'm going max effort. And you know what? I can look at the lack of recovery as, the question is, when do you discontinue the work? You know, you do a max effort, you come down and recover. You do a max effort, you come down and recover. When you stop recovering, you stop doing the work. That's the physiology. So you still use heart rate as your indicator, but it's the lack of recovery that drives the decision to stop. Gotcha. That's interesting. All right, guys, we got about 10 minutes left. Any final questions from Connor or Stephen before we, I, before we I, wrap up? See, I gave you shit for asking a biohacker question, and now I'm going to ask one. <laughs> <laughs> You said you've got earphones that measure heart rate. What earbuds measure heart rate? You know what? I'm not even going to mention it because they suck so bad. Okay. Yeah, it <laughs> caught my attention. I was like, wait a minute. I can do this because the chest strap gets in the way of some of the stuff I like to do. The chest strap only gets in the way if the data that you give it is, if the value of the data that it gives you is not worth the hassle. This is trans-theoretical model stuff. The cost of the hassle versus the value of the, of the change. When the change is appropriate, when the value of the data becomes valuable enough, you'll engage in the hassle. Agreed. Um, so well, I hired Connor. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and I'm a hassle, that's for sure. <laughs> so um, the chest transmitter is only a problem if the data is not there. If you're using it to, 
as an analog for this, yeah, it's not worth it. But when you start getting continuous heart rate measurement from all the work that you do, that's EKG data. That's electronic EKG data. The, when you're using either the earbuds or something on your wrist, that's called uh, photoplasmography. That science has gotten much better. So I will use photoplasmography is good. Most of the, I tend to be a connoisseur of this data, so I want a better data set. So I use the EKG. But you know what? If I'm down in Florida and I'm at the beach and I don't have my transmitter and I want to go do a workout, well, I've usually got a watch on or I can get that data some other way using PPG. I take this question really deep and nerdy towards some of the alternative cardiac measures that you can have, especially mm-hmm. in terms of like blood stroke volume, like some of those very granular blood pressure, cardiac ejection, like those sorts of metrics. Have you used those at all? And if so, what have you used them for? No, I, because I don't think that's decisionable data. You know, stroke volume, if I have a clinical illness and I'm trying to do diagnostic work, then we'll go into that and I'll start to ask that. But the data that I look at is data that I can take and make a decision with that I change something in my life. I either change my workout or I change my sleeping habit or I change my recovery. I want decisionable data. So stroke volume and things like that, it's not decisionable until it becomes clinical. Luckily, I'm not there yet. Um, <laughs> yeah, but so, the reason why I ask is there's, there's some interesting data surrounding that and flow. And so some of the flow research looks at these very specific metrics, and you can get things like valence and arousal out of them that can be yeah. helpful, but it's not as good. It's, it goes beyond the recovery question for sure. You know, the challenge with flow is, is this, and I don't know if we've had this conversation before or not, but Stephen... When I was wrestling back in, you know, I was, a, I was my fourth year in 1984, and I was a pretty good wrestler. I was 39 and nine that year. But of the nine losses, seven of them took place in dual meet situations in our home arena, which basically meant I couldn't lose on the road and I couldn't win at home. And I started working with a sports psychologist that summer, and he turned me on to Cheek Sent Me High's flow. And there was a mindset shift in that for me where I shifted from competing to performing. And basically, he taught me about flow, and I fell in love with it. And flow has been something I've taught in my classroom ever since. So because I can't get people to do things differently until I change the way they think about doing things. So when I'm designing a workout, when I'm designing an environment, it has to be flow creating. So that being said, Unfortunately, I can go out and I can create flow at the drop of a hat. It's a skill that I've, now, I have to get rid of the blocks. I have to turn my phone off. I can't be disturbed. I got, I got to focus on the task at hand. I've got to have clear goals and feedback for what I'm doing. Monitoring for me are my clear goals and feedback. So the, one of the flow generating properties of technology is it's keeping me focused on the task at hand. It's also given me the feedback that I need for making decisions in the context of this workout. So the challenge is, I think, as far as creating flow for people, Number one, have they experienced it to begin with? Do, you know, can they go back? John, and it's not a problem here. We're going to take your high flow sweat. We're going to bottle it. We're going to sell it to people. <laughs> so yeah, well, you heard it here first. Uh, limited, limited availability. Right? He's fifty-eight. He doesn't sweat like he used to. But so the price is up. But yeah. <laughs> 
see Rian after the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a little that's a little weird, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome to the <laughs> And there it is. Stephen weirded out another podcast. <laughs> I did it again. I did it again. <laughs> another last episode. <laughs> um, Don, I got I want to ask you our, our research genie question before you jump. Which is just if you could click your fingers and have any research done or any uh, research question immediately answered, what would that be? Hmm. So, what am I looking for now? What are the questions I'm trying to answer? Like I said, I go back to the thing I want to dig into is understanding these intensity issues. You know, at what intensity do I get mitochondrial development? Okay. At what intensity do I get anandamide maximization? At what intensity, you know, can I go zone five? Can I go max effort, come back down and not get a cortisol response? Can I get a pure, because, you know, if I live in zone four too long and I'm, and I'm getting this huge lactate response, okay? Lactate drives cortisol. There's no two ways about it. You know, that's, again, it's evolutionary. When your body says, hey, when you're doing something that's creating a lot of lactate, your life was obviously under threat and you were really working to get away. You know, I think of it from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, if I'm trying to catch food, it's fast, it's max effort. I either get the animal or I don't. We're back down, we're moving through, and then I go for the animal again. But when I'm in a lactate situation, where I'm zone five and zone four, the lion's chasing me and I'm trying to save my own life. You know, I'm trying not to be lunch. And again, when you have that lactate event, you want to just go climb in a tree for a day and chill. That's that cortisol response and so forth. So I think this is the opportunity that exists in understanding training. And then you take it that next level. And this is the thing that we've found is that, again, based on the traumatic portfolio that you bring to this from an athletic standpoint, you know what? Your training may be completely different than mine. Phenotypically, we can be exactly the same, same height, same weight, same strength, same, you know, everything. But based on our perception of stress, based on our hypervigilance, it'll affect the way that work leads to recovery and gives us the ability to transition into a parasympathetic state. That's fascinating. Super helpful. When they measure parasympathetic, sympathetic stuff with flow, we see activity of both systems. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's what drives slow. It's a it's a co-engagement, sympathetic, parasympathetic. I agree with you. And if that's the case, CBD, THC primes the parasympathetic response without dampening the sympathetic response, or will it? Well, let's think about this. Well, so CBD. Let me, let me ask a slightly different question because this is something I hear from action sport athletes a lot, which is, yeah. if I go skiing and I smoke pot before my body is warmed up. I'm going to block flow all day. But if I get warmed up and then introduce THC, it'll get me into flow. So there seems to be like, there's a weird, and I, again, this is just anecdote. There's no, I haven't seen actual data. It's just anecdote, but it caught my attention. I've heard it from dozens of athletes at this point. Well, and I think there's a lot to learn. You know, we see a lot of information coming out of Colorado right now about exercisers using THC in the context of exercise. And, you know, A lot of this, before I went back down to Florida and went back into the industry, so I had used cannabis personally back in college. It was pure recreational. And I distinctly remember 
so we weren't tested back then. So it wasn't as big a threat to us as it is now. They test a lot more than what it was back then. But I remember the last time I got high was the day after Lenny Bias died. So we woke up the next day and here's Lenny Bias. And I'm like, and I just said to myself, I go, you know, what the fuck are you doing? You know, why don't you just take that out of your life? And I did. Um, it just, it wasn't part of my life anymore. And, and, it, and you know, it wasn't hard. It wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. Now, as I have a family member that I'm trying to help uh, migrate through this post-traumatic stress experience and having to deal with fibromyalgia and all the other issues that come with PTSD, you know, and you understand that cannabis can be beneficial. It helps them sleep. It helps with the anxiety. It helps with pain. You know what? We started to, to look at that again. Then I had a chance to go into the industry and, and you go into the industry and you're sitting here and I've got these grams of 98%, 95% THC extract that you hit that and it throws you on your ass for hours. That's certainly not what you're looking for. It's this, there is the titration of the, of the elements, yep. not to mention bringing the terpenoids in. I think the terpenoids can be as important as the cannabinoids. There's a lot to learn. That's for sure. Well, thanks a million, Don. It's been amazing. How, how can folks support your work or engage more with you? So my social media is pretty straightforward. Don Moxley, Twitter, Don Moxley, Instagram. I, most of the stuff that I put up at relating to human performance comes through my Twitter feed. I'm not a big Facebook guy. Instagram's more family. I have a lot of stuff up on my LinkedIn page. And Train Recover Win, if you go to www.trainrecoverwin, that's my site that I'm, frankly, it's a sophomore attempt at, you know, trying to market myself. I'm just not there yet. But if you have questions, reach out to me. It's, it's, I'm pretty available. Hey, I want to thank you guys. I love the work that you do. And for me to be able to be on here with you guys is absolutely a highlight. I'm putting this on my VTech. <laughs> no, it's, I, so John, it, I, I have to say I, I lecture on HRV with some frequency and one of my slides is from your portrayal of different athletes RMSSD and when you walked through no their kidding. performance and so the way that I teach this is very much in like the frame that I learned from you so I'm, I'm deeply grateful for that oh yeah, thanks yeah. a lot yeah yeah no you definitely you, your work has definitely impacted our work a lot along the way um, I think you turned us around a lot on how we thought about HRV and performance. And, I, you know, I go again, I go back to my, to, again, to Ron Garbo's, when you look at, it's this co-engagement and this was real, this was important to me. He calls it left foot braking, you know, that the race car drivers have a right foot on the, on the accelerator that's down. That's the sympathetic side, but then using the parasympathetic side, the brake foot to moderate the experience. I love that analogy. And, and I go back to, to Ron and, and how he's used that. And I think of flow, you have to have this sympathetic parasympathetic engagement. You've got to coach the parasympathetic side of this thing. Everyone can go to the whip, okay? Every coach out there, and just because they coach doesn't mean they're good. They might have been a good athlete, and they've just kind of reticulated into the coaching environment. They may not know a damn thing about coaching, but the ability to create this environment, this flow-generating, concentrate, you know, skill-matched, concentration on the, on the task at hand, clear goals and feedback, driving those key elements, but then being able to work that athlete into this co-engaged sympathetic, parasympathetic, man, that's a really cool place to be. Mm -hmm. It's great work. 100%.
Thanks, Thanks Tom. Dad, for grace. We'll see you. We'll see you soon. We're having you back. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Maybe next time <laughs> you, I won't be sitting. I won't be sitting in my car. I promise. No, I think. Look, <laughs> yeah, you know, if the cannabis thing doesn't work out, you may have a future as a limo driver. <laughs> good on you. you know what? I keep. I have an Uber account. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Todd. All the best. Thanks, buddy. Be good. See you, Tom. Thanks, Rick. If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.